0: So I'm going to talk about the moral insignificance of self-consciousness. Now I'm I'm aware that often talks at the St. Cross seminar are a bit more applied than this one's going to be, so I'll apologize for that if I need to apologize for it, but the applied upshot of this could be quite big insofar as it's a common assumption that self-consciousness is what we might call highly morally significant. So a number of philosophers, I don't know if it's a majority of philosophers that work in ethics, but certainly a number of them, and some of them quite prominent, seem to assume that self-consciousness is highly morally significant. Sometimes, by highly, it's thought self-consciousness underwrites the attribution of personhood, or so-called full moral status to an entity. The way I'll be thinking about the moral significance of self-consciousness here, it at least allows you to make this claim. So the claim would be the fact that an entity is self-conscious. Generate strong moral reasons to treat that entity in certain ways and these would be, for example, reasons that make killing such an entity a very serious matter. Now I'm talking about self-consciousness, so I should say something about what I mean by that and that's because self-consciousness is a term that can be understood in different kinds of ways. So I'll mention one way it's often understood, just to put it to one side, this would be self-consciousness as a property of phenomenally conscious mental states so I look out at the room and I see an array of faces and if I put my philosophy of mind hat on I, I might say well there's something it's like to see the array of faces this is supposed to be an additional property you might say it's there's not just something it's like to see the faces there's something it's like for me to see the faces so if I'm self-conscious there's a property you can call it for me-ness that attaches to maybe to all of my conscious experiences maybe to some of them Now, this property, for me, is kind of controversial in the philosophy of mind. I'm not going to talk about it at all beyond just this moment. And that's because this is not how the people I want to engage with think about self-consciousness. So I'm going to be thinking of self-consciousness in this way, as a kind of capacity. So on this understanding of self-consciousness, it's the capacity to think of oneself as oneself and to think of various features of oneself as features of oneself. I think that's how most people in the applied ethics literature are thinking of self consciousness, and that's certainly how I'm going to be thinking of it today. I want to talk about the moral significance of self consciousness, but before I do, I'll say just a little bit about the functional significance of self consciousness. And I hope that becomes clear uh, relatively soon. I think that there is a kind of tendency in this literature to read moral significance off of functional significance. And insofar as I think a lot of the assumptions about the functional significance of self-consciousness in this literature are mistaken, I think it can be a, a bad kind of mistake in reasoning to think self-consciousness is functionally quite significant. Therefore, or assuming some bridge between function and moral significance, self-consciousness becomes highly morally significant. So. It's not as though there aren't proposals about the functional significance of self-consciousness in the literature, but I'm not sure that the right kind of thing to help the moral Mm -hmm. philosopher. So here are two proposals that have been made. John Pollock and Janan Ismail argue that self-consciousness is important as a part of a broader operation of practical reasoning. I don't want to go into the details of their account, but basically the thought is if an agent or an animal needs to implement goals in unpredictable environments, self-consciousness becomes very important for their ability to do that. Robert Van Gulick has argued that self-consciousness is important for learning. I don't want to deny either of those two proposals, although you could if you wanted to, I suppose. The reason I don't want to is I'm interested in the moral significance of self-consciousness here, and it looks to me like if either of those proposals are right, self-consciousness is not going to track the standard assumption in moral philosophy, which is that self-consciousness is a marker of human-like moral significance. And the reason is that all sorts of non-human animals implement goals and unpredictable environments, all sorts of non-human animals learn. In fact, Bob Van Gulik, when he's setting out his proposal, talks about uh, learning in mice as a way to argue that self-consciousness is important. So it's just not going to do the right kind of work, I don't think, those functional proposals. So it's sometimes said, maybe even in response to this kind of point, that look, human animals, non-human animals may possess some level of self-consciousness, But their mental lives aren't characterized by the kind of high level self-consciousness that you and i that is adult human beings enjoy so this is the switch from thinking about self-consciousness as a capacity that you either have or don't to maybe a more fine-grained analysis where it comes in degrees it's not that clear what we mean by degrees of self-consciousness and it's rarely made clear and i think we ought to question whether this kind of talk talk in terms of levels or degrees of self-consciousness is as precise or as accurate as we need it to be in moral theory and let me say a bit about why i think that so look the capacity for self consciousness at least in you and i emerges developmentally alongside a suite of sophisticated cognitive and behavioral capacities so this is just a few there are more so capacities to learn from others via imitation uh, application of a theory of mind to other people and perhaps to oneself, integration of autobiographical memories over time and there's there's more. Now as I've already said, the possession of self-consciousness involves a kind of capacity to token mental states with a certain kind of representational content that would be content that refers to the subject who tokens the state as the subject who tokens the state okay. So it looks like we've got a distinction here, the distinction is just this, a capacity to token self-referring mental states, in virtue of which you would be self-conscious, and then a wealth of background knowledge that you might or might not have, and by this wealth of background knowledge you might be able to represent all sorts of things as holding of yourself. I want to say what's critical when we're talking about the functional role of self-consciousness is not just the capacity, kind of the capacity in virtue of which you're self-conscious, but interactions between the capacity and quite a wide range of additional cognitive capacities, including the abilities to represent various things as holding of oneself. So here's the key thought that I'm driving towards right now with this talk about the function of self-consciousness. If it's only one piece of integrated tapestry, then we really want to hear a justification for singling out self-consciousness as deserving of special attention and moral philosophy. Maybe we ought to be thinking about the moral significance of greater working memory capacity, better attentional capacities. I think one problem with that is it doesn't have the the kind of intuitional punch that talk of self-consciousness does. But I'm suggesting, and I'm going to keep suggesting, that that intuition is misleading. So, here's a kind of reaction uh, that an ethicist might have to what I've said so far. So, the reaction is this. So what if self-consciousness is not that causally or functionally important? It might be morally significant for non-functional reasons. And I don't disagree with that at all. I'm about to turn to a bunch of arguments that would seek to establish the moral significance of self-consciousness for roughly non-functional kinds of reasons. The reason I want to point this out is because, I said earlier, there's a kind of reasoning that goes on in this literature that I think is sneaky and dubious. And it comes from false assumptions about the function of self-consciousness. So I'll turn to a passage from Peter Singer as an illustration of what I'm talking about. This is from his Practical Ethics, uh, the third edition. So this is a quote. He says, rational self-conscious beings are individuals leading lives of their own and cannot in any sense be regarded merely as receptacles for containing a certain quantity of happiness. So you and I, were not merely receptacles. Beings that are conscious but not self-conscious, on the other hand, more nearly approximate the image of receptacles for experiences of pleasure and pain because their preferences will be of a more immediate sort. They will not have desires that project their images of their own existence into the future. Their conscious states are not internally linked over time. If they become unconscious, for example by falling asleep, then before the loss of consciousness they would have no expectations or desires for anything that might happen subsequently and if they regain consciousness they have no awareness of having previously existed. Okay so I find a number of the things that Singer says in this passage difficult to believe if he's taken as talking primarily about what self-consciousness does for an entity so he he appears to be suggesting with this claim that non-self-conscious beings don't have states that are internally linked over time he appears to be suggesting that (laughs) non subconscious <laughs> beings don't have much in the way of memory. That's at least one way of taking him. He appears to be suggesting that non-self-conscious beings don't have dispositional mental states. So this would be a state that survives a period of dreamless sleep. So for example, I, I believe that zebras have black and white stripes. That's rarely conscious in my mind, but it survives. I've, I've all day believed that zebras have black and white stripes and it survives in virtue of all sorts of cognitive capacities that I have, but it looks like maybe non-self-conscious animals don't have that for Singer. They certainly don't seem to have expectations for the future, at least beyond a few seconds in advance, which is, if that's true, it's hard to understand how they would do much of anything in the world. So you might ask, what's going on? Is Singer serious about this? Well, to be fair to Singer, he is willing to give self-consciousness to quite a wide range of non-human animals. What's tricky about this pattern of reasoning is that not everybody needs to do that. So you could accept his claims about self-consciousness, reject all the non-human animals he wants to say are self-conscious, and then you stop ascribing moral significance to quite a wide range of beings. So here's a suggestion. I think Singer here is conflating self-consciousness with a suite of cognitive and behavioral capacities, and he's giving it a functional significance that's not really its due. And I think that this, is of moral importance, and so here's Singer moving beyond what he said earlier. This is another quote. He says, therefore, if they, and these are the non self conscious entities, were killed while unconscious and replaced by a similar number of other members of their species who will be created only if the first group were killed, there would, from the perspective of their awareness, be no difference between that and the same animals losing and regaining consciousness. So every night, a new death, so to speak. So I think because of assumptions about the functional significance of self-consciousness, singers inclined to consider these lives, lives of non-self-conscious beings, uh, as of no intrinsic moral significance, they're just receptacles for certain kinds of experiences, and I think that that is dubious. So here's the the general moral I want to draw. In order to properly examine the moral significance of some feature or property of an entity, I think we need to get a grip on the feature or property, so it's important to be clear what exactly we're talking about. With that said, I want to turn now away from stuff about function and think about arguments for the non-instrumental moral significance of self-consciousness. So this would be the self-consciousness, the significance self-consciousness has uh, in itself, we might say, for an entity that has it. And here's the kind of program for what's left. I'll give three arguments, argument from the metaphysics of personhood, then I'll look at an argument that's intended to kind of fix a perceived flaw in that argument an argument from interests, and an argument from moral agency. So spoiler alert, they're all going to fail, but it may be fun to find out how they fail, at least for me. Okay, so turning first to the metaphysics of personhood. Now this is, in the first instance, going to be about a metaphysical issue. What is it to be a person in the metaphysical sense? So to get to moral claims, we're going to have to assume some kind of bridge principle and I'm just going to assume it. So I'm going to be looking mostly at the work of Lynn Rudder Baker, who's done some very interesting work on personhood. And she's happy to assume this bridge principle. There can be no right to life unless there is a person to be a subject of that right. I think that's highly debatable, but I'm just going to grant it. Okay? So if you're a metaphysical person, then you have high-level moral significance, we might say. Here's what Baker thinks about personhood. She says, what distinguishes person from other primary kinds is that persons have first-person perspectives. What's a first-person perspective? To have a first-person perspective is to be able to think of oneself without the use of any name, description, or demonstrative. It's the ability to conceive of oneself as oneself from the inside as it were. So it sounds like she's talking a lot about what I said when I said self-consciousness is a kind of capacity Now as Baker recognizes there's a problem for this kind of view at least if you want to talk about personhood in the moral sense. Problem is the dude on the left. So the dude on the right's almost five years old. It looks like he's got the first-person perspective. The dude on the left, at least when that photo was taken, about three months old, mm-hmm. looks like he doesn't have the right kind of first-person perspective. But look, he's a good-looking dude. We can say that about him. Looks a lot like his dad. Uh, it seems to me that he's got as much moral significance as, as you and I. It seems to me that he's a person metaphysical person, ethical person, all that, but he doesn't have the first-person perspective that Baker's talking about. And she recognizes this, so she wants to include human infants, she wants to include severely cognitively disabled individuals in her account of personhood. So she introduces this idea, what she calls a rudimentary first-person perspective. She says a being has a rudimentary first-person perspective, if and only if three things. It's a conscious sentient being, it has a capacity to imitate, its behavior is explainable only by attribution of beliefs, desires, and intentions. Okay. Now, again, you might worry about some of those. Two and three uh, feel a bit ad hoc to me as a definition of something that's rudimentary and is a first-person perspective, but let's just grant it for now. One problem about the rudimentary first-person perspective is that a lot of non-human animals have it, and Baker's aware of this, so it's not really controversial that non-human animals have something like that, according to Baker. So she wants to say, look, not all rudimentary first-person perspectives are metaphysically alike. She says, I mean to pick out those rudimentary first-person perspectives that developmentally ground or underpin robust first-person perspectives. Okay. Now, you might already sense some kind of functional language sneaking in. I mean, I don't know how else to take developmental grounding or developmental underpinning if it's not a functional claim. But here's her account of personhood nonetheless. A person is an entity that has at least a rudimentary first-person perspective, so long as this perspective is a developmental preliminary to a robust first-person perspective, i.e. to self-consciousness. That's the account she ends up with, at least for now. Here's what I want to say about that account. It looks like, as she admits, many beings have this rudimentary first-person perspective, but they don't go on to develop adult-like self-consciousness, human adult-like. So we can ask in what sense is this rudimentary perspective developmentally underpinning adult self-consciousness if it seems to fail to go on to develop into these things in all sorts of non-human animals and also in severely cognitively disabled individuals perhaps. Well look the fact is it's not only a rudimentary first-person perspective that developmentally underpins self-consciousness. You need all sorts of other things, so perhaps it's greater working memory capacity, more sophisticated mechanisms of cognitive control, maybe you need metacognition, fill in your own kind of list. Perhaps Baker would argue that this perspective at least plays some developmental role for human beings, so perhaps there's some reason that it's not enabled to play this role in non-humans, but it is enabled in humans. But look, if the role's only partial, why single out a rudimentary first-person perspective? So what's metaphysically special about capacities for sentience, imitation, and the rest, as Baker identifies it, that's not so important about all the other stuff you're going to need to go on to develop a robust first-person perspective? It's not clear that Baker has an answer. So I think there's a kind of awkward tension in Baker's view. So I think she ought to extend personhood to all entities that possess a rudimentary first-person perspective, or she shouldn't appeal to this perspective as importantly different from other developmental precursors of a robust first-person perspective. And look, I say it's an awkward tension because I don't think that she's going to like either option. So on option one, the scope of her account is far too broad. So some people, I might be one of them, would be happy extending personhood to all sorts of things, but it looks like Baker doesn't want to do that. On option two, I've already mentioned this kind of problem before. It looks like if she goes with option two, which just to say it again, is to say, look, the rudimentary first-person perspective is not the only thing. There's all these other things that are developmentally important. She loses the intuitive punch that comes along with emphasizing self-consciousness. She has to talk about all sorts of things that go into being intelligent or cognitively sophisticated or something like that instead of being self-conscious. So I think Baker's account doesn't work. Now... Here's where I want to consider a fix, a proposed fix. Now, it's not actually proposed as a fix, so I'm about to talk about a suggestion that Jose Luis Bermudez makes in a 1995 article, since before Baker's work. But it's nice to try to see if it plugs in here, and it's meant to, to salvage the dude on the left, so we want him in our club. Who could deny that <laughs> we want him in our club? And so Bermudez suggests, uh, look, We should accept this principle of derived moral significance. So this is in a 1995 paper in Ethics. This is the principle. Bermudez says, look, if a particular feature or property is deemed to confer moral significance upon a life that has it, then any primitive form of that feature or property will also confer moral significance, although not necessarily to the same degree. So Bermudez is is going, if this principle goes through, he's going to avoid some of the problems that Baker runs through when it comes to talking about development. Bermudez doesn't care about development. He's talking about moral significance at a time. In fact, he says this principle is consistent with this other principle. The moral significance of a life at a particular moment is determined not by what it might become or by what it might have been, but rather by significance bestowing properties or features of that life at that time. Okay, So why accept the principle of derived moral significance? He gives it as a principle that's supposed to hold quite generally. So he wants to apply it to self-consciousness, but of course he's talking about any moral property at all. And I think it's doubtful that the principle does hold in full generality. It's a little difficult to assess it because self-consciousness is a kind of obvious candidate, but he can't appeal just to self-consciousness without kind of begging the question. So we might think about other properties that are deemed to confer moral significance, maybe rationality, sentience or consciousness, membership in the human species. The latter two don't really seem to apply, so at least arguably these two things, you either have them or you don't. There's no primitive form of membership in the human species, and likewise with sentience, you might think. So we're left with things like rationality. Now, I, I just don't, I don't know if the principle works for rationality. I'm uncertain about it. Maybe you can tell me how your intuitions go. So does, a, does an ant have a kind of moral significance because as it skitters about on the sidewalk, it displays a really primitive form of practical rationality? I don't, I don't know. If it doesn't, then the principle doesn't go through. But I think there's a kind of worse problem for principle, I can put it kind of like this. So you might be tempted to accept the principle via an expectation that whatever reasons support the moral significance of the robust property ought to support the moral significance of a primitive version of that property. It's kind of telling that Bermudez doesn't really argue that way. So he wants to give a general principle and doesn't give particular reasons to think that primitive versions of self-consciousness are morally significant. So I'm saying look the principle is not going to save you if the reasons aren't there and what are the reasons with respect to self-consciousness? So why think that self-consciousness, even the robust version, is highly morally significant? Bermudez appears to just assume that such reasons exist. Uh, He does do one thing, he approvingly cites an argument that's out there for the moral significance of self-consciousness. So, that's the argument that I'll turn to now. That's the second one I want to consider. Uh, we can call it an argument from interest. Now this is a well-known argument. It's from Michael Thule. I originally gave it in the 70s. And Thule's not worried about the dude on the left, the baby that I keep showing you. Um, that's because in this article that Thule wrote, he's, he's arguing that infanticide might not be as bad as we all seem to think it is. So Thule's happy with that kind of conclusion, uh, which you might think um, is already reason to reject the view. But look, Let's consider it. So he he wants to argue for this principle. He says an organism possesses a serious right to life only if it possesses the concept of self as a continuing subject of experiences and other mental states and believes that it is itself such a continuing entity. Why does an organism possess a serious as opposed to a non-serious right to life only if it possesses these things? Here's how he seems to want to argue. So first point he wants to get out there. The only individuals that possess rights are conscious individuals. That's a kind of necessary condition he has. Number two, the particular rights that individuals possess are tied to their particular desires. So here's a passage in which he sets out why he thinks this. He says, A has a right to X, is roughly synonymous with A is the sort of thing that is a subject of experiences and other mental states. A is capable of desiring X, and if A does desire X, then others are under a prima facie obligation to refrain from actions that would deprive him of it. So, point two, your particular rights are tied to particular desires that you have. And then three, the desire to continue to exist as a subject of experiences and other mental states requires self-consciousness. You might say four, which I'm not going to have on the screen. The desire to continue to exist as a subject of experiences and other mental states is what's required if you're to actually have a right to life. Okay. So self-consciousness is required to have this right to life via this line of reasoning. So what to say about this? Well, I'm hardly the first person to criticize this argument. As I said, it was written in the 70s, so you can imagine that philosophers have had time to say nasty things about it. I think there's little reason to believe that the only rights we have stem from our actual desires. So a stubborn four-year-old has a right to an education crankiest anti-government libertarian might have a right to government provided health care those are just two examples Mm -hmm. but look that's not really a problem for Thule's argument he might say at least some of our rights come from our particular desires but it looks to me now here I'm appealing to a kind of intuition about this maybe um, so you can tell me what you think it looks like it's not necessarily irrational to desire to die it certainly looks to me like it's not irrational to fail to have a desire to continue to exist well into the future If I feel like my death is necessary for some good to come to my family, I might just lose the desire to continue to exist. And in that case, it looks like I might not lose my right to life, in which case Thule's argument's in trouble. Now, Thule recognizes that there are problems with the argument as he originally gave it. So in a 1983 book, he moves to the claim that you just need to be capable so you don't need to actually desire that you continue to exist you just need to be capable of desiring that you continue to exist in order to qualify as a person and therefore have a right to life it's worth pointing out that that claim is totally divorced from the reasoning that initially led Thule to privilege self-consciousness so that reasoning you'll recall depended on a kind of intuition that particular desires create particular rights we're no longer talking about particular desires, we're just talking about capabilities to desire. And I just think there's no good reason to believe that principle. So I have the capacity to desire a weekend in snowy Oslo. I take it that none of you are under an obligation to refrain from actions that would prevent my satisfaction of that desire. So you shouldn't go around in your daily planning thinking, well, am I getting in the way of Josh making it to Oslo? If you are thinking that way, thanks, very kind. That's super derogatory. So I think Thule's argument fails. Now, we can look at a nearby argument. So I'm not leaving the argument from interest totally behind because there is one that's kind of in the neighborhood. Again, it's offered by Peter Singer. It's offered on behalf of the preference utilitarian. So here's Singer, this is a quote. For preference utilitarians, taking the life of a person will normally be worse than taking the life of some other being. Because persons are highly future-oriented in their preferences. To kill a person is therefore normally to violate not just one, but a wide range of the most central and significant preferences a being can have. In contrast, beings that cannot see themselves as beings of the future do not have any preferences about their own future existence. Still a singer quote. Sorry for all the text. This is not to deny that such beings might struggle against a situation in which their lives are in danger as a fish struggles to get free of the barbed hook in its mouth, but this indicates no more than a preference for the cessation of a state of affairs that causes pain or fear. The behavior of a fish on a hook suggests a reason for not killing fish by that method, but doesn't in itself suggest a preference utilitarian reason against killing fish by a method that brings about death instantly without first causing pain or distress. Struggles against danger and pain don't suggest that fish are capable of preferring their own future existence to non-existence. Okay. So the basic idea with this argument is, look, if you are self-conscious, you're going to have way more preferences about farther and farther and farther events in the future. So on the preference utilitarian calculus, it's going to be worse overall to kill you. I think there are a few problems with this argument, uh, not mentioning the fact that it's on behalf of the preference <coughs> utilitarian. Um It doesn't become better to kill the aged because they're less future oriented than the young. I think it's not worse either to kill someone who has desires and intentions for events that are 200 years hence. I mean, whether irrationally or not. So I have desires that go 200 years into the future. Not really about my own existence. But it's not clear what my own existence has to do with weighting my own preferences about events that are going to happen. The second problem is related to this. I think it's just not clear that this argument requires self consciousness. So, interests are all that matter for the preference utilitarian. I think the more future oriented you are, let's just say, okay, the more interests you might have. But, interests about the future, so future orientation doesn't require self consciousness unless you assume some things about the functional role of self consciousness. Interests about the future can just be interests about the future. So, a salmon swimming upstream seems to have interests about the future. It's got to make mm-hmm. it all the way up there, it might be a long way away. So I think that the Singer argument doesn't work. Which brings me to the last argument I'm going to consider, uh, an argument for moral agency. And here, just as with the argument for the metaphysics of persons, I'm going to have to assume a kind of bridge principle. It'll be something like this. Full moral agency or real moral agency brings with it uh, greater significance as a moral patient, because that's really what we're talking about, we're talking about moral patiency here. And I'm going to look primarily at an argument that Christine Korsgaard gives. So Korsgaard's view of moral agency most prominently perhaps includes self-consciousness. It's a really subtle view, so I might not be able to do it justice tonight, but Korsgaard recently has been talking about animals, so it's interesting to look at what she's been saying. And for her, she wants to argue that human agency occupies a top level, beneath which are two other levels. So it'll be useful to look at the bottom two levels and then to think about what humans have that others don't. So here's the bottom level. It's people merely guided by perception. She uses a spider as an example. She says, A spider crawls towards the moth that's caught in the middle of her web. Here we begin to be tempted to use the language of action, and it's clear enough why. When an animal's movements are guided by her perceptions, they are under the control of her mind. And when they are under the control of her mind, we are tempted to say they are under the animal's own control. So bottom level, merely guided by perception. One level up, a mixed cognitive awareness into the stew. So she says, even if there's a gradual continuum, it seems right to say that an animal that can entertain his purposes before his mind, that perhaps even entertain thoughts about how to achieve those purposes, is exerting a greater degree of conscious control over his own movements than, say, the spider, and is therefore in a deeper sense an agent. So that's a deeper level. Some kind of cognitive awareness provides a greater degree of conscious control. We're still not the full human level, real moral agency. Full human agency involves something different. And I'm going to throw a kind of number of passages from Korsgaard at you because that's the best way I've come across to try to exposit her view. Maybe there's a better one. But Korsgaard says, though the animal thinks about how to pursue his purposes, the animal doesn't choose his purposes. You and I choose our purposes. The animal's purposes, she says, are given to him by his affective states, his emotions and his desires and so on. That's not true of us, and the difference is self-consciousness. So why is self-consciousness so important? Why does self-consciousness create choice when a non-human animal that lacks self-consciousness doesn't really choose his purposes? Here's a passage from Korsgaard. She says, normative self-governance requires a certain form of self-consciousness, namely consciousness of the grounds on which you propose to act as grounds. A non-human agent may be conscious of the object of his fear or desire and conscious of it as fearful or desirable, and so as something to be avoided or to be sought. That's the ground of his action. But a rational animal is, in addition, conscious that she fears or desires the object and that she is inclined to act in a certain way as a result. Now, this, this claim about rational animals, so you need to be conscious that you have a certain cognitive state, like a fear or a desire or something like that. This might tempt you to think this. Is, is Korsgaard saying that all we need is metacognition, which is just cognition that's about our cognition? Is that's all that's required? If so, then her claim about human speciality might be in trouble, because it looks like some animals have metacognition. But I think she's not saying that. So, in fact, I think what she's saying is a bit more interesting. So, I think the kind of operation she's describing in which self-consciousness allows us to question our grounds for action is more sophisticated than that prior passage might make you think. So here's where I have, I think, three passages from Korsgarb where she's starting to present this more sophisticated thing I'm talking about. So she says self-consciousness opens up a space between the experience of the incentive and what previously had been the instinctive response. And that space transforms incentives into inclinations and governing instincts into free reason. Self-consciousness is therefore the source of a psychic complexity not experienced by the other animals and it transforms psychic unity from a natural state into something that has to be achieved into a task and an activity. Once we're self-conscious the soul has parts and then before we can act it must be unified. At the very same time and for the very same reason, practical deliberation becomes necessary. For free reason, need not follow inclination, we must now decide what to do. The function of deliberation is not merely to determine how you will act, but also to unify you. Or rather, to put the point more correctly, those are not two different things your movement will not be an action unless it is attributable to you, to you as a whole unified being, rather than merely to something in you. And the task of deliberation is to determine what you, you as a whole or a unified being are going to do. Okay, so I apologize for reading so many passages, but it's a kind of subtle view. Here's what I want to say kind of in summary. I think Korsgaard is saying without self-consciousness, we wouldn't be able to understand and we wouldn't be able to properly feel the pull of uh, this norm that she thinks is critical for being a real moral agent, a norm of psychic unity. So we have to be capable of striving to unify ourselves as an agent and it in time if we're to qualify as a course guardian moral agent. So in this sense, it's not a functional role self-consciousness is playing. It's a kind of constitutive rule. I think self-consciousness is critical for moral agency in the way that the possession of a seat is critical for a chair. It's just a bad chair. It's not a chair at all if it lacks a seat. Same with self-consciousness and moral agency. It's about how you're structured. So when Korsgaard says this thing, it seems a bit odd. When she says non-human animals have their behavior determined by instinct or their choices made for them, she's not, I think, making the claim that non-human animals have less flexibility in their behavior I think rather she's claiming that such systems aren't made in the right kind of way to be the kinds of things to which we attribute genuine actions. They're not really agents in the real sense of that word. Okay. So that's a kind of sophisticated and subtle picture of what it is to be a real moral agent. Some philosophers have tried to pick holes in various inferential steps along the way and how she gets to her kind of full picture. I'm not going to do that in part because... uh, that literature's out there to be read. I agree with some of the criticisms. I, I want to just offer a kind of alternative picture. So I find the picture we're given of what it is to be a real moral agent imminently rejectable, and I want to say why that is. So we can ask, what makes a genuine action attributable to an entity? For Korsgaard, uh, genuine actions aren't attributable to spiders or things that just have cognitive awareness. You have to have this full thing, self-conscious thing going. So a different picture of actions maintains that, look, this is what actions are. They're the kinds of things produced in the right causal way by mental states like intentions. That's a popular view in the philosophy of action. It's my view, among other people. I didn't invent it. I just agree that it's right. If this is your view of action, then you might wonder, what's the sense in which course guardian actions are supposed to be really special? As we've seen, the answer is supposed to involve some normative demand to unify yourself as an agent. But this demand is ambiguous in a really crucial respect. Elijah Milgram has pointed this out among other people, I think. So we can ask, what's the scope of the unity I have to achieve in order to truly act? Is it just that I need to unify myself at a time? Well, non-human animals do that. Do I need to unify myself over some slightly longer stretch of time? Look, non-human animals do that. Do I need to unify all of my life projects? Well, I think there's little reason to think that human beings do this. And there's not really any good reason to think that they should. So what's so bad about containing multitudes, you might say? So I think a human agent is not saddled with an all-encompassing normative demand to determine what she as a whole is going to do uh, at any given time or over time. I think we're saddled instead with with a wide range of norms regarding how best to navigate our motivations, goals, projects. And a range of norms that arise when we recognize that others have motivations and goals that need to be taken into consideration as well. It's not to say that the project of constituting oneself as a unified agent lacks value, but it is to say that we shouldn't fetishize it. So I think such a project is optional. And so I don't think it's the kind of thing that could ground full moral status or real moral agency or anything like that. So just to conclude, I've looked at three arguments in favor of the moral significance of self-consciousness. I think those are probably the best arguments that are out there, although I welcome any more arguments that people might know of or people might have. I think they all fail, so I think self-consciousness, uh, at least we won't have any good reason to think it's highly morally significant. I also think, and I've suggested this along the way, that when we're, suggest- when we're trying to explore something that's really important to how we understand our own lives and the lives of others, and that would be, in this case, the grounds of the moral significance we, and perhaps non-human animals, human infants, The severely cognitively disabled have it's important not to get distracted by red herrings that's what that is and I think self-consciousness in this context is a kind of particularly shiny red herring it really draws attention uh, and it shouldn't so I think reflection on the nature and grounds of human and non-human moral significance should turn elsewhere thanks